It's always funny when folks talk about strong women like we're mutants out here surviving in the wilderness, but really we just be casually queening. Strong women tackle storms and shout rally cries and look these devils in the eye and can make a throne out of a bus bench. We invite you into our temple, but don't get too comfortable because we will invite you to exit if you fool with our peace. And by the way, strong women, having feelings don't make you weak. If you gotta cry, let them fall. Then mop them up and keep it moving. Cause we gotta knuckle up, hustle up, buckle up for the ride and know when to shut up. Cause strength is also knowing when to hold your rage until it's refined. See, strong women disrupt politeness in the way of purpose. And then we make lames nervous. So they say we masculine. Try again. Strong women keep it 100 and got you mad cause you ain't seen it coming. Cause we still get underestimated. Though our kind can create life right round our stomachs. Strong women are not ladylike to folks who think to be a lady, you must be liked. Strong women are not for everyone. Strong women are everywhere. Strong women don't give a damn if you don't like our hair. We out here holding signs, reading signs, redesigning how we've been defined, and we bag, and we fly, and we dope, and we fine. And we come home, come out our bra, take our cape off, and unwind with a glass of wine. Honey, laughing our way through the naysayers, body waving through the bullshit. Don't fear our strength. Step up and step in to replenish it. We are solid because we are the bridges that make this world connect. They say all day, I want a strong woman. But know this, a revolutionary woman's love will not be one passively. So if you want a strong woman, you better come correct. What's happening, what's happening? This is Chill Time is Will Time. And once again, your host, William Moore, coming at you with another great episode. Um, Today, I have a really special guest with us here today. Um, If any of you guys realize, I think briefly in maybe a couple episodes before, 
I talked about how I was taking part in a um, doula, a birth attendant training. If I forgot to mention that, now you know. So anyways, my guest that's with me today is actually somebody who is, you know, already has some experience doing it, but she is also taking the course with me. So with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and let her introduce herself. Peace, love, liberation, everyone. My name is Jasmine Boda. Um, as Will said, I am a doula, I'm an educator, an activist, an author, a mother, an advocate, community member. Um, I wear a lot of hats. Y'all heard that? Her list is long and strong. <laughs> She's a busybody. She's out doing a lot of things. But uh, that's also why I wanted to bring her on the podcast. I feel like she has a lot of great... Uh, insight to share and um, some great perspectives and she definitely when I sat down and talked spoke with her um, through this training she definitely jumped out to me as somebody that I wanted to carve out some time with and just have a conversation with so with with that being said um, here we are so how you doing today I'm doing good it's been a long day um, just bouncing around, spent some time. You know, I'm a mom trying to wear that hat and a business person. Um, doula work today has been very interesting. <laughs> um, I just had a baby that was born last week. So doing a postpartum checkup, helping mom latch, getting these random pictures of breastfeeding babies. Um, but it's been a beautiful day. That's awesome. That's awesome. And earlier you were telling me about uh, before you got here, you just you were doing yoga, right? Yeah. But not just any yoga. So so I'm gonna have her elaborate on this with you guys. Um, I learned something new. I knew that there was yoga out there. I've tried it a couple times. I'm not very good at it. I'll tell you that much. As somebody who does a lot of power lifting and stuff like that, I can tell you I am somewhat uh, stiff, <laughs> and I cannot hold a pose for longer than 15 seconds. It is a great workout, but I suck at it. But Miss Jasmine here kind of enlightened me to the fact that there is a, a comedic yoga that she practices. You want to talk about that for a little bit? Yes. Um, so my yoga journey started at Carleton College. Before that, um, I was living on the south side of Chicago, west side of Detroit. I didn't really, I'd heard about yoga, but every time I seen people practice, it was always like white people practicing. So I always dissociated. Yeah, it didn't seem like something that would happen in the black community much. It's like, it just shows you how how strong stereotypes are. Right. Because there's plenty of black folks that practice, yeah, at least now anyway, that practice yoga, but it's it's much like skateboarding was when I was younger. When I was skateboarding when I was younger, everybody used to pick on me and be like, oh, that's what the white kids do. Mm-hmm. Now everybody does it. You know what I mean? It's, that's it's what crazy. I like to do. Right. Um, so it's that, it, it started off as that. Actually, it was a class. Um, my senior year, I needed to finish my like gym cert- I mean, like, <laughs> credits or something. So I ended up taking like step aerobics and yoga. It was like three different classes. You only need four. (laughs) (laughs) But I had waited. Um, So that was like my first introduction. And my first year of teaching, I really struggled um, with just self-care and just getting myself together. So um, someone was like, you know. What were you teaching? I taught middle school social studies. Okay. So so I didn't know that. So that's why 
You said teaching. I'm like, wait a second. Teaching yeah. what? Okay. I have a master's in education. Um, I taught middle school social studies for about three years. Um, before in the, had, in the cities? In Boston. Okay. Yep. Yep. After Carlton, I moved to um, Boston, Massachusetts, and I went to UMass Boston and got my master's in education with the focus in teaching history. Um, so I really needed something outside of because I was working really long hours. You know, I was isolated um, from my family and yoga. I used to go to the gym. I used to play basketball. So I used to go to the gym and kind of work out or shoot around. But that wasn't enough. Like I needed I needed that um, the breathing and the stretching and the getting focused and centered um, mentally. So that's where my journey started. Um, when I went, when I got pregnant with my daughter, I really did prenatal yoga. Um, this is probably connected to some questions later, but um, I was preparing myself for a natural birth. And one of um, the documentaries that I was reading really talked about holistic practices to get into while you're pregnant to prepare your body. And prenatal yoga was one of those. So I went super hard like, while I was right. pregnant, um, uh, maybe like three times a week. Um, and that was what helped prepare me, help prepare my body for a natural birth. But that was that was white Indian uh, yoga. <laughs> About uh, two years ago, I met a guy. His name um, is Floyd Williams, and he's really um, RBG Black Power solid dude. But he started, he has all these books about racism and about discrimination. And he just came out, he came out last year saying that he was a comedic yoga instructor. Like yourself, I heard about, you know, I've seen some of the poses some on the hieroglyphs. We do see them actually engaging in yoga practices, um, sun salutations, um, giving honor to Ra and all of those things. But I didn't know anyone who was doing it. So right. when he said that he was certified, I kind of went to his classes and I've been going for about a month or so. And it is really just the way that our ancestors practice yoga. They were the first people to practice before Indian people, um, before any other culture, uh, ancient Kemet people were the first to practice yoga. So it's really based on those principles. It is about just the language around the yoga is different. You know, a lot of the, the yoga um, that I have been to is really focusing on breath, but it wasn't focusing on breath as the, the way that they described it. It's not like breath as life force. And um, there's a special way in comedic yoga that you breathe in terms of taking a deep breath, feeling your belly, counting to a number, and really just increasing that and focusing on the parts of your body and it's also a connection a direct connection to our ancestors so spiritually comedic yoga is where it's at that's <laughs> right. the best way i can describe it interesting i it's definitely something after you kind of started talking to me about it it was something i was like all right so if i do in fact give yoga a try um again it's something that i kind of want to look into just for the simple fact like i'm curious in all those different things like i'm curious as to anything that is good for um, about mindfulness, mm -hmm. around mindfulness, mental health, and stuff like that. Like I was, you know, I briefly said it to you, you know, before we, you know, we went on air. Like I really started lately. I've been into this kick where I've been studying Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, I went and bought the Bodhisattva. I have started reading Buddhist magazines. 
Um, and not because I necessarily believe in a religion. I, you know, I am not a Buddhist. I'm not thinking about becoming a Buddhist any, you know, any, in any shape, form or fashion. But what I, um, what I do appreciate about Buddhism is, like I said, a lot of their practices, a lot of their practices in there are really centered around mental health, um, and just mindfulness, like being in the moment, um, and making sure that you are generating some sort of positive energy first within yourself and then make sure that you're emanating that, you know, around in, in your surroundings. Because I'm a firm believer that, yeah, what you put in yourself can be bad, like food, mm-hmm. um, the environment, you know, chemicals, everything, you know what I mean? Like drugs, alcohol, all that stuff can be bad for you mm-hmm. um, and will kill you. But the one thing that will kill you before anything is stress. Mm-hmm. Stress and bad energy. I'm a firm sure. believer in that. Yes. I mean, how else do you explain people who are, you know, absolutely 100% fit, marathon runners, work out all the time, and drop dead from heart attacks or, you know, mm-hmm. I even, to, and to be honest, like, I, I, I don't have any um, scientific proof or evidence of this. You know, it's just my theory. But I even think, like, Cancer comes from bad energy. Like, I know there are some other scientific things that uh, um, that sh- that show what different forms of cancer come from. But I think negative energy also contributes to that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and stress. Yeah, stress. Stress, yeah. yeah. And yeah, so, and there's so, some science around that. Yeah, so I'm really interested in anything that um, prohibits, you know, any of that coming into my life. And I think um, the culture we have here in America... Um, just all work and no play and really just going 100 miles an hour and not really looking after and taking care of ourselves, um, we cultivate that negative energy um, on a daily basis. And so it's incumbent upon all of us to really um, look within and kind of address that. You know what I mean? Look within, address that, and, uh, and also help each other with it. You know what I mean? And I think that that also bleeds into the mental health arena as well. Um, but I mean, that's my spell on that. That's real. Yeah. But um, one of the uh, like the biggest reason that I brought you here is um, your work as a doula mm-hmm. um, or birth attendant, however you know, however you want to say it. Um, we've learned different ways of uh, labeling it in our class. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things I want to ask you. Um, is it, you know, in your eyes, in your opinion, like how important are the roles of doulas or midwives in the black community? <clears throat> Very important. Um, I, it's, it's been a journey for me to get to a space where I understand the importance of it. Um, I think like when I found out I was pregnant, um, what started my whole journey, my pregnancy and labor and delivery journey was my friend. Um, I had to be about, I found out I was five weeks, you know, I was in shock. I was, I was just out of it. Like, I was like, I can't believe this is happening. Um, just finished grad school. It was my second year of teaching. I was like, this is not. Was it one of those, my life is over type of thing? Yeah. Like I was very, <laughs> now that I look back on it, I was like super dramatic, but I was in shock. I think for about the first three months of my pregnancy, I was like, this is not really happening. Like, this is, then I started getting sick and I was throwing up. I was like, something is definitely happening to my body. But when I, one of the first persons, uh, people, sorry, that I told was my best friend. 
And her first question to me, you know, she went through the how do you feel thing. And I'm just like, I don't know. I'm nervous. I'm scared. I'm excited. I'm happy. I feel blessed. But then I feel like I just sinned and, you know, all of these things, these problematic messages were in my head. And she asked me, um, have you thought about what you're going to do for your for birthday? And I'm like, no, actually, <laughs> like, no. I'm just trying to make I'm it. I'm just trying to marry. I'm just trying to get through it. And um, that question, though, sparked um, just like this, rev- the way that I tell the story is like this revolution in me. I was like, okay, now this is happening. It's clear. That was definitely a positive on the test. It's, there's a baby in there. So um, that began this whole journey of, you know, filling in the gaps of knowledge. I, I re- I've seen people who were pregnant. I, I had I seen them be pregnant, go to the hospital, come back with the baby. But I didn't know in between what happened. You know, I didn't know how to grow a healthy baby. Um, and it was very important for me that I was breaking the cycle for a lot of things with, with my child. So I began um, reading everything I could get my hands on about natural birth and around um, breastfeeding and all of these things. And about, I think it took me about four months, I came back to her and said, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do or what I'm going to do. Like, you know, I'm cutting these things out of my diet because these are the things that I've read that help, were going to help me grow a healthy baby and a healthy brain. Then I'm having a natural birth because one, for the mental and um, emotional reasons behind it, I really needed to fully feel the experience. Um, And two, a lot of psychological things, as I was doing my research, a lot of psychological things came up about natural birthing. So in that, you know, I went to this clinic that was really close to my house and I had a lot of conversations, kind of felt out different doctors. I ended up having a, um, a doctor that was an old white man who was very problematic the first 30 weeks of my pregnancy. And it was... What was, what was so problematic about it? Just his language, um, the way that he spoke down at me, the way that he made assumptions about who I was based on where I lived, um, based on my appearance. Um, he really thought I was this uneducated, you know, person and I would have to stop him. You know, it would be very uncomfortable. I would let him talk, give his bill and say, just to let you know, you know, I have a master's in education, very well versed. Like, you know, I've been studying this. I'm not, I've never had a child before. But um, these are the things that, you know, I need you to know about me as we go into the next, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I'm also like, you don't have to tell me. Like, you're not oblivious. Right. Like, I know I need to do certain things. So around 30 weeks was the first time we had a discussion about my birthing practices. And I thought that was kind of weird. Um, and he, when I told him I was preparing for a natural birth, he basically said, quote unquote, like you people come in here and say this a lot and not many people go through with it. And I shook my head and I never went back. (laughs) I ended up getting, um, introduced to this program, this doula program. And basically, um, no, I went to a midwife first. So I went to the front desk immediately. I said, this person cannot be my, uh, my provider anymore because he was actually stressing me out like every time I would see him I would get anxiety and I would get stressed heart out. rate level yeah. rising and everything yeah right? and I was just it didn't feel right and even now that I look at it like my baby was really it was all of the signs that I'm like okay maybe I'm tripping like she would be doing back flips and kicking and punching and I'm like yeah, okay yeah. just the sound of his voice was just 
bad. Um, so I went to the front desk and I said, you know, I'm not, I refuse to see this person. What are my options? And the lady was like, well, we have, you know, have you considered a midwife? And I, you know, that had come up in my research, but I thought because of the type of insurance that I had um, and that I was going to that clinic, that that wasn't an option for me. And I also... When I moved to Boston, I wasn't driving, so I really needed somewhere that was close. And I would, it's probably why I had a good labor, I would literally walk like like almost a mile to go. I would intentionally not get on the bus or intentionally not like get a lift and I would walk, that was right. my thing. So when I went to see the midwife, completely different experience. It, I wasn't rushed in my, um, in my visits. You know, she was very welcoming. She was this white hippie lady that was just like, you are beautiful. You're growing a healthy, you're growing a little human. Do you want to hug? Like she would have incense burning and um, flowers, fresh flowers everywhere. And I was like, what the hell is this? But I loved it because I felt so... Not she comforted you right and she really like our meetings our, our appointments were about 30 minutes long and it really was about building a relationship with me figuring out who I was what I cared about um, and grounding into the birthing experience so one of her practices was it was called <coughs> grounding or centering and it was really about um, celebrating the mother and celebrating what you wanted to be- to come out of this pregnancy and birth and um, when I told her, one, one of the check-ins, she was like, how are you feeling? It was like around 34 weeks. I'm like, I'm getting nervous. You know, it's, I don't know when I'm going to have this baby. My daughter's father was here in Minnesota. I was in Boston. My mom was in Chicago. I'm like, you know, they're, they're, they're planning to come here close to the birth. But, you know, I could go and labor at any, any time. Second. He'd be on your own. So she was like, have you, again, she was like, you know, I have this program that I want to tell you about. And it's basically a program that matches women with doulas. And I'm, I'm like, at this point, I'll try anything. Like, I want to make sure when I go into labor, I don't feel like I'm alone. And that just trying to that just kind of changed my life. Just the different experience, the the completely different feel of having someone care for you and mother you. Like doula literally is mothering the mother or caring for the mother, and um, it was that. And I remember very specifically, right after it was actually like right after I had my daughter. It was a twenty five hour long um, labor and birth process. And when they laid the baby on my chest, I remember looking at my doula and I remember saying like, all women should, like I get emotional just thinking about it. I was like, you know, all women should experience this. And she looked at me and she was like, I know, like that's why I'm here. Um, I guess I never said it like that. But when she said that, something in me was like, black women don't experience this often. Like we don't get to feel that. and I think in my in that moment, I was like, I'm gonna be a doula. Like I am going to be there for women at the hardest part of their life. Like you, you're literally um, close to death. Like you have to get close to death to birth birth these children. Like we're in between here and there. Like right. Um, so it was in my birthing room that I was like, this is important. This is needed. Um, she worked even though we started and it happened that she i had initially been assigned to an old white lady 
that I was like, I don't. <laughs> I was like, I need support, and you know, it's free. So, but then I remember looking at the pictures and looking for a black face or looking for a person of color that that is like, I want them. And I remember looking at um, my doula's picture, and I was like, oh, she looked, reading her description, and she worked in New York, and I was like, this, I need her. And the day, it just so happened, the day that I went into labor and that my water broke, she was the one that was on call. So it was very divine. Um, and I think it's very important because um, midwives and doulas are gatekeepers. Like, I think they are or we are um we hold sacred spaces for women and we um they're very important they're very so you know i think we've talked about this briefly you know last week um you know they're a very important part of the process in general mm-hmm. and they um it, 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 it in America, it seems to be like we're the one country that kind of like, not to say like there are, we do have midwives in some hospitals or whatever, right? But they don't play as an, inter, an, an as integral a part in um, the birthing process and in the culture here in America as they do other countries. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sad. Yeah. Um, especially now before doing, you know, learning all of this, I would not have said that. Mm-hmm. But after learning what I've learned... Mm-hmm. I do think it's sad, but at the same time, it's consistent with American culture. Yeah. Because American culture is is very, you know, um, is is very much like individualistic. Mm-hmm. It is not about like the family as a whole. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the fact that like, you know, legislation they're trying to cut down the amount of uh, maternity leave my like moms get. In other countries, they give them up to a year. year right. In a place like New Zealand, they pay you to have kids. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And if you look at you know other cultures too and you can see it in households here like in hispanic culture east african cultures stuff like that it's not odd to see three or four generations living under one roof Mm -hmm. but in american culture if it's three or four generations living in one roof then somebody's considered a bum or a loser or somebody's not doing what they're supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. you know so it, it, it when you think about it it's you know that that's consistent behavior um with american culture and I remember, you know, we watched one of those videos and a guy was talking about how, like, it's almost like a sickness. Yeah. Like, it, it, it totally, like, strips or it doesn't foster the type of bond between a mother and a child or a child and a father, just a family dynamic that it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, that was definitely something that I learned and like, really stuck out to me, mm-hmm. you know, when I, when I, um, when I was watching that video, you know, as we were taking that class. And, yeah, I think, um, yeah, like I said, I think every single woman, especially black women, is dealing with the toxic stress of life that puts us, you know, at risk for a lot of things. And then, to be honest, the mental um, transformation that happens when you go through the birthing process and when you have someone who's supporting you. Like, I will always be connected to that woman. Like, I still send her updates. You know, I send her pictures of my daughter. I still thank her to this day. Um, So I think that it's very important for us to see people that look like us and to know that we're cared for. And um, doulas are just the advocate, you know, that's in between. We take a lot of heat for the women to make sure that 
their needs are being met and to make sure that they're treated fairly, you know, that they're not treated like criminals when they go in to birth their babies, that their wishes are respected and that, um, you know, we hold people accountable because there have been so many situations where because it's a black woman, it's like, oh, it's not a big deal that you're breastfeeding your baby and we just gave your baby formula without your consent. No, that's against her rights, her bill of rights. And that is listed clearly, you know, in your hospital policy. That's what you have to do as a doula to let them know that, no, this is not another person that no one cares about. This is a woman and a baby that matters and you're going to make it right. (laughs) Yeah, doula, I mean, like I said, doula and midwives are are, are super important, especially in a, because they are that number one advocate um, for the mother, especially in, in an environment, too, where a lot of times, like, the father is excluded. Yeah. See, there's this myth a lot of times that, like, men just don't want to be a part of that process. Mm-hmm. But the, I can tell you that, the, like, that's patently false because we w- – there's a culture that out there that um, essentially, like, excludes the father, for, like, from day one. It, like, it's – I mean, look at the, even the way we taught sex ed. Like, we're taught sex ed mm-hmm. in a very selfish way. Mm-hmm. Men are taught about their bodies. They're taught a little bit about some of women's bodies. Mm-hmm. And about sex is just an experience, like something you do. Right. right? Yeah. That's it. We're not taught about all the different type of changes that women's bodies go through. Mm-hmm. We're not taught about, the chemi- taught about the chemical changes that women's bodies go through. But also, I learned about this process, men go through chemical changes, too. And women aren't taught that either. Like. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it's very like it's it's a very like un um. What's the you know what's the word I want to use for that? It's a not very comprehensive way of teaching. Um, you know what I'm saying? Males and females about each other, especially when they get that young. And I think we're failing our kids when it comes to that because we're having babies that young. We're having babies at 13, 14, 15 years old. Right. So why not? You know what I'm saying? Like, equip them with the best tools and and, and, and the most knowledge possible. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, even when, from the standpoint of when, you know, the mother goes in for her first checkups, right? And when the father comes, I've heard plenty of stories about how the doctor doesn't even talk to the father as if he's even, like, like he doesn't even exist, mm-hmm. right? And we, we, had, um, we had to deal with that, too, where even, even postpartum after having the baby um you know my daughter's father will come and he would either fly to boston for the visits or i would facetime him in if his work schedule and i would have to be like you're talking to both of us like he's here um and postpartum was really interesting because i was so out of it that i was like man i don't i don't know what today is (laughs) i don't know the last time that i showered and that I would have to coach the person who, the pediatrician, to say, ask him, when is the last time the baby pooped? He knows. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, we. they acted like they never seen that dynamic. But I was just like, I'm focusing on making milk and keeping the child alive. He does the rest. <laughs> right. And when they exclude us like that, like, whether it be consciously or subconsciously, like, men internalize that, right? Yeah, and sure. so then as the process goes along... They, like I said, they internalize that. And what that manifests itself is, Mm -hmm. I don't have a place in this process. I don't belong in this process. Mm -hmm. And so then you get stuff like, that's what, you know, when men develop this mentality of, you know, when the baby's here, um, I provide financial support. That should be it. Mm -hmm. No, that's not it. Mm -hmm. And just because you just physically there, that's not it either. Because you can be physically there. 
in the household. But if you're not mentally and emotionally present, that's just as bad as not being there at all. Maybe even worse mm-hmm. because a child or the mother actually sees you there and they see they see you being dismissive. Mm-hmm. And what happens is the man doesn't even know that he's doing that. Mm-hmm. But that's because he's being conditioned for that. Now, for those out there who you're you know who are listening, don't get don't get it twisted. I'm not making excuses for all men. There are some men who are just absentee of their responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And for those brothers. You know, I apologize for them, but they need to get help and do better. Right. But what I am saying is there's a myth out there there's a myth out there that, you know, no man cares and most men don't care or they don't ha- or, or, or they don't care to take part in the process and that's simply not true. Mm-hmm. What I'm outlining and highlighting to you is that what I've learned throughout this process and getting certified to be a doula and birth attendant myself is that we're excluded from the jump. Mm-hmm. And then that, and, and and in turn, like we get into like almost like an autopilot, and then we we perform our duties just in that exact manner mm-hmm. as being absent, mm-hmm. except unless it's just financially, and that's something that we have to stop, and that's one of the reasons why I um, made the decision to uh, become a certified doula birth attendant. Because I, you know, as a part of my job, I am taking part in this program called Doula Dads. And the point of it is, is yes, I'll be a certified birth attendant and I can be a doula for any woman out there. But the main objective is to so that I can learn everything about the birth process so that I can be a support to other men out there who are going through, you know, the process of having their first child so that they know also know their rights and responsibilities in the situation. But not just their rights and responsibilities, but the rights and responsibilities of their significant other. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, there is a situation like, you know, I'm saying Sister Jasmine just, you know, just quoted where, you know, you're not all there. Like you're going through so many different things that at some point in time, like you just need somebody to speak for you, that that man can be supportive and be and be that other uh, 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 a strong uh, you know shoulder to lean on and be that component. Because the bottom line is that it takes two, and if it takes two, then it should be two throughout the whole process. You know, any public health nurse will tell you that a child's best success or best you know a chance for success, mm-hmm. and not only like surviving. But actually, but also like developing is if both parents are actively involved. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that they have, have to both be together. They have to both be married. You know, they have to be married or be dating, even living in the same house. But they have to both be actively involved. And I think the more we can teach, you know, men about this process, the more we can teach them about even simple things like. Like I said, women go through what go, go through chemical changes that cause you know make them behave certain ways. That that's not for you to take personal. That's for you to get get a you know gain a better understanding of. So you know where should I where can I where, where can I be of use better use at this moment in time? Do I need to just be an ear for her to listen to? Do I need to? Be more active. It can take control and take over the feeding. You know, the feeding. Do I need to do more cleanup around the house? Do I need to be the one who makes sure the snacks are near mm-hmm. so that she can eat? You know, and, and while she's busy taking care of the baby the whole time, what can I do? It's about being a better support system and helping. You know, the man knowing his options and helping his significant other know her options as well. So. Yeah, um, for sure. Just to your point, I do want to say there are there. I believe one of her, one of Erica Badu's babies was helped was delivered or helped in the process by a male. I think of a male friend. I can't remember what child, but there is um, the presence of a male. Actually, there's scientific um, studies around how that impacts the labor. 
and it's proven that women who don't have that male presence there experience longer labors, harder labors, because it's a hormonal thing. It's a hormonal right. exchange. Like you're saying, you made that, you made the baby. Um, you know, the man's sperm is what helps start labor. A lot of people, you know, you like right. man in class. But um, it's really proven that a lot of women don't have that male support there. And, you know, because for many different reasons, you know, some men feel like they don't have a place there or they don't like how the doctors looked at them or talked to them. Um, and they're just like, just tell me when the baby's born and I'll come, you know, but not right. realizing that it's part of the process that we need our partners there. Um, and, you know, my partner was there. We actually, we have a really crazy story, but we weren't together, but he was there through everything, you know, even if he, even if he lives in the beginning, it got rough after that, but <laughs> in the beginning, um, and just to have him there when, you know, sometimes the doula wasn't firm enough and to have this big football playing dude that's like she said no like she don't want to be checked <laughs> get right. out um that played a role in how they approached me how they spoke to me um and i really have just been in experiences where the male presence is not there and to see how it shifts the dynamic um my last my last birth was was super dramatic but having her husband there was just like amazing. The last two births have been a married couple. I've been married couples, and our our experience has just been different. You know, just having that man where we could be like, "Look, can you say it?" Because clearly, when I say it, they're not respecting it. Um, so I think more, but we need to get you know more families together, no matter what the dynamic is, centering the child, and it's best for both of you to be there to enter for to welcome. Right, you know, right. the child into the world. I agree. I agree. So, you know, I guess my next question is like, what do you feel is like really missing from this work, and how do you think we can kind of bring it to the forefront? Yeah, um, I think what's missing is we don't give the work the credit that it needs, and how important it is, and it's an integral part of the birthing experience. Um, just investing in that and and it's not something that is only for privileged white women you know women who can afford the services it is something that i feel like every woman deserves and what's missing is we don't it's really hard to articulate what you what we do as doulas because it shifts and it's individualized on in every woman is different every birth is different every family dynamic is different um, so really shedding light on how this can be a life or death experience for mother and baby um, and to to show the impact. You know, I think we haven't gotten to the stories where we can see that, you know, when there's a doula involved, this is the outcome. And when there's not a doula involved, this is the outcome. And um, it's like we know it in our circles, but the, the overall community and society as a whole getting that shift, that paradigm shift where it is bringing back the humanity of mothers, you know, asking a woman to go back to work at six weeks, that's inhumane. Like her, her womb is not even closed up yet. Most yeah. of them are going back to work before six oh, weeks. I know. It's like two. It's, it's crazy. It's like I know. I have clients who, you know, I have I 
I have to realize that they're doing it because they feel like they have to and a lot of them do you know a lot of them are the sole breadwinners for their home i've had women who on that day three when they get released from the hospital they they're at work the evening crazy. or the next day and it's very you know that's very challenging for me because i had the privilege of staying home you know i, I stayed home for the first three months um because I had a good job that paid, you know, that that made sure that I was able to do that. Um, and I still wasn't healed. I went back three three months back to working and I still had issues and I still had, you know, I still had some healing to do. So to see that there are women who don't get that at all. And then they have issues, you know, there are issues down the line, infections and things where they're missing more work, you know, it's kind of a rat race, it's a cycle that we need to figure out how to break. Um, and what's missing is com- like structure, community structure, that the way that we used to do things, you know, like like what we're learning in class, there was a granny midwife, she had a part to play, they, all the women in the family did certain things, the men had certain responsibilities, and it was like together, we surround this baby and this mom, and we just don't have that you know some of my clients when they call and they're like you know i'm really i need help and they're calling me you know to come over and just hold the baby so they can get a shower like that shouldn't be happening there should be people and family members that are around her where it's like we are leaving her in a small apartment with a crying infant you know with no sleep that's recipe for disasters recipe for postpartum depression to kick in um, I think that's what's missing, like a structure, like a structure to surround them. You know, who she's pregnant, she's going to the hospital, who's at her house cleaning up, who is preparing the meals, you know, who's making sure that she has food in the refrigerator, um, that she doesn't have to get up and, and do too much to prepare. We just don't have that, you know. How do you think we go about changing that? I think it's, it is a culture shift, you know, this is the practice that I despise the most is everyone's excited when, you know, not everyone, but most people, they're, they're excited for anticipating that baby, right? And when a baby comes, they be gone. It, they, be, they, they don't help. And then the mother, or if they're there, there's so many like underlying little jokes of, like you don't matter now. It's not about you. It's all about the baby. And, well, you know, oh, and that gets I internalized to, though. Yes, it gets internalized. I used to have to stop people because you know my daughter was born ten days before my birthday, so her birthday is January 9th minus the nineteenth. And everyone kept saying, you know, she she's gonna come on your birthday. I was like, no, she's not. Like, um, you you are already gonna forget about me. Like, we need a separation of space <laughs> and birth dates. Um, and but then every and people still do it now. You know, I show up in the community. They're like, "Where's Maya?" And I'm like, "Hey, hello." You know, the person who's been keeping her alive. Like, how am I doing? Right. Um, so just getting people in the habit of like, do not ever tell a mother that she does not matter because not even in a joking way. It is because you don't know how she's receiving that. Right. So to get people in the habit of address the mom, speak to the mom first. You know, you can ask about the child, but make sure that you that if because the reality is if she's not getting what she needs and she's not being poured into, that's when we come into those issues where we have toxic behaviors and um, toxic 
um, patterns of uh, attachment and all of those things, emotional abuse that the mother is projecting onto the child because she's not getting her needs met. Um, And if we really are saying that we care about the children, you cannot care about the children without caring about their parents. It's just, that's just common sense to me because that's the person who's caring for them. Yeah, for sure. It's funny too that you, like, well, it's not funny, but it's interesting that you said, you know, part of what we're missing is the structure because, you know, in the training, we learned about two ladies specifically. Uh, Miss Margaret Smith in Alabama, uh, in Alabama and Gladys Milton in Florida, mm-hmm. um, and we just learned about the history of the of the of the granny midwives and stuff like that. And like, like it was extensive. It was a practice where, I mean, back in the you know late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds, like granny midwives didn't just help take care and deliver black babies; they helped mm-hmm. take care and deliver white babies yep. as well. And we see the same thing with nursing too, with wet nursing and all that. Get really. Right. I remember us learning that how in like uh, in Mississippi it was that uh, the Mississippi the public health department came through mm-hmm. like requesting all this paperwork and all these certifications mm-hmm. for these granny midwives that have been practicing for decades. Right. Yes. Yeah. Been practicing for decades, mm-hmm. and then that alone was because they put in these standards with these women and like different like. Like certain, you know, having them use certain materials that they are not privy to using before and reading certain things when some of them didn't know how to read because of the time period and, you know, and and, and stuff like that. That cut the amount of granny midwives down by like half. Just that alone, you know. And and I just found it funny because or like not funny, but like I said, interesting because. You know, they they wanted to get rid of all these granny midwives, right? But the moment there was like some type of complicated birth or whatever yeah. in the hospital, who did they call? They yeah, the public health department in these hospitals are looking for these granny midwives, the same ones that they wanted to source out of, you know what I'm saying, out of these positions. And then you got ladies like Gladys Milton in South Florida. I forgot the book that was written about her, but I want to grab that. And how the public health department actually helped set her up or wanted to set her up to to in her position of being a midwife and she wound up delivering something around was it 1500 babies by herself mm-hmm. and how then in the end they wanted to shut her down and it was remarkable to see like all these people out and supporting her mm-hmm. black white mm-hmm. young old mm-hmm. just saying like no she's so she's so much a part of the fabric of this community you know what i mean that like we're not going to allow that and I think if I'm not uh, if I'm not mistaken, her daughter and her son or whatnot, mm-hmm. her family still practices in South Florida today. Or Miss Margaret Smith, they wrote a book about her called uh, "Listen to Me Good," mm-hmm. and how you know her in Alabama, how she's known for delivering. It's an astronomical number mm-hmm. of kids and babies, and how you know there's, they they did a lot of interviews of. Of women saying, yep, she delivered all my kids, mm-hmm. and she taught me this and that and how to take care of them and make sure they were healthy. And it's just, though, you know, listen, listening to those stories and hearing about the legacies of those women, like, it went from making me feel, like, you know, good about taking part in the training from being, like, you know, I'm a man and I'm taking it as a part of my responsibility to give back to my community, but also uh, uh, learning this trade and 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 trying to like bring it back but also be supportive of you know our significant others but but also give other men the skills to do so mm-hmm. 
to being like just mad, just just proud as can be of, yo, this is a huge legacy that I'm helping to carry on Mm -hmm. and that I'm helping to spread. Mm -hmm. And so just hearing about that was, yo, that did a lot for me. Like, I think a lot of people walked out of out of that class, like, you know, I'm saying like heart just filled and feeling big about it. I know I did. Yeah. And I think what. There, you know, one of my doula classes, we took also the first um, session was about granny midwives, but there's a dissertation. um, I think it's even a video, if I'm not mistaken, called Behind the Veil. And it goes through the, the experience of the granny midwives and a lot of it. Is disconnected to our roots and how we've done things. We we had apprenticeships. We had experiences where it was just like you're a woman in the household. We just automatically pass you this information. When someone's birthing here, this is what you do. And you grow up and you see home births at your house, and you see you know your aunties and and all of your children having babies there, and you watch and you support. But behind the veil, it talks about how these women were. They didn't need the formal quote unquote training. They were connected to the creator and spirit so, so strongly that they knew what to do. And I would just say just as myself, as someone who I felt is also called um, just from having that experience internally, like your intuition, your gut, your discernment. There's nothing that I can read in a book that 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 can help me get at that. So the granny midwives really believe that, you know, God and the creator called them to do this. And a lot of the the accounts are like, you know, when the woman was bleeding out, what, what did you do? How did you do this? And then they say the first thing that they did was pray. You know, the first thing that they did was like, you know, God, the creator, I ask that you you, you guide my hands. You, you show me the way. And for much of our experience in this country that has always been our our um experience to have our intuition or our connection to creator and our into spirit be undermined you know right and um a lot of us are just when we're connected and when we're spiritually in tune we're, we're being called and used and that that can't be taught in a classroom it, it cannot be taught and our outcomes have been way better than the hospital because you don't have that you're trying to create this system and this structure for controlling the birthing process and it's not something that can be controlled so their outcomes are horrible that's why because they're not connected to the creator and spirit when they're doing their work granny midwives they have that under control so behind the veil i think everyone you know should look at that it's a dissertation and it's very powerful, very powerful. Um, and even them bringing, while they were Christian, they were still bringing their magic and their their ways of being from that just been passed down. You know? Yeah, it's funny. I remember one like, of the things that was highlighted. Yeah, where they bag. had some of them had you know one bag that when public health departments came to inspect, yeah. it had inspect it had all the stuff that they were supposedly needed mm-hmm. to have, and then they had a secret bag. Yes. Of the traditional things that they use, mm-hmm. or they just had one bag that had a false bottom yep. that had their traditional stuff in the hidden bottom, but all the quote unquote public health department necessities, mm-hmm. you know, at the top of the bag. I thought that that was pretty cool. Yeah, because it was considered um, witchy, you know, witch right, stuff. witchcraft. And yeah. it was really like, okay, they had some flower essence or they had some essential oils that you need to rub on. Which the is top. what everybody's starting to use nowadays, anyway. Yep. When I pack my bag, 
you know, that is what, and there have been, and I'm not going to lie, there have been many times in the hospital where I've listened to the nurse, I'll listen to the doctor, and I say, okay, blood pressure's high. Then they go out, and I know what to do. Like, this is what we're going to do. Sniff this oil, sit down, relax, breathe a few times, and is the nurse bothering you? Like, is your blood pressure going up because you don't like her? You know, things like that where they're never, you know... I don't tell them that that's in my bag. I don't tell them that that's what I'm using. But when they come in, they're like, wow, how did you do that? Oh, you know, we just walked around or something. Like, clearly. I did. <laughs> I can dig it. Yeah. So, I guess, like, so, if we go, so let's fast forward. Let's think. Ten years from now, mm-hmm. where do you see yourself and this work? And are those things mutually exclusive? Like, are you, is like, are you still going to be, is, is this your life ten years from now? <laughs> Um, so, no, this is not my life 10 years from now. Okay. Um, I definitely will be practicing and attending births. I'm in the process of, I have a group that I started about three years ago called Black Lotus Mothers. That is really a safe space for black women to come and gather in person, online. Um, I always give all the women my direct contact to my phone. That's why a lot of people are like, you're on your phone all the the time. Like, I'm literally, like... Doing business. Helping women live. (laughs) Right. Um, So, I'm in the process of working towards a collaborative home or healing space for black women um, called the Black Lotus Mothers Home, Black Lotus Mothers Healing Collective. And I'm seriously, seriously thinking about becoming a midwife. Um, Even before this class, it has just been... Because I've had a few situations where... It, it, baby number 13, man. The doctor, the midwife was in between um, the rooms. And the baby's head was inching out, inching out. Midwife wasn't in there. Everybody's freaking out. I'm like, I know exactly what to do. And I'm, like, getting anxious because I'm, like, I know that, like, the midwife usually like, put her finger down there, tell the mom to push, and she knows how to push the baby out. So it's like I am being called to midwifery, but um, going back to school is not is going back to school to be a midwife right now is not it it doesn't feel feasible as a single woman um with a with a toddler basically right um so in 10 years hopefully i can figure that out where i'm literally catching babies and i'm a midwife um i would love to do that i would love to have a healing home Um, I'm also inching into off-grid life. I have a friend, my best friend, who lives off-grid, and she, um, we're really thinking about a healing sanctuary for women. Um, Just her off-grid space has been so healing and therapeutic for myself and her. Um, She's a social worker and, you know, has dealt with some some depression and some anxiety stuff, and, and myself too, so... Hopefully, in the next 10 years, you know, we can have that black woman's healing sanctuary, a black lotus mother's home. Um, And I'm thinking I want, you know, the women from my book um, are from all over. And I think every city can benefit from a collective healing space for women to come live together, raise their children together, um, you know, grow our own food, um, have community meals. Like a commune. Kind of, and is yeah. is that ultimately where you would like to see all of this work? You would like to see it all head that direction? Yes, I would like to have, if I could, um, I mean, I, I, I did start saving for it, but if I could have a house where 
I even like that, for example, being a doula, being a midwife, can you imagine if I lived with another woman or two other women who had children um, and who are kind of figuring this thing out, have their own businesses where I'm like, okay, the woman is going into labor, it's two o'clock in the morning, you know, can I wake you up and be like, hey, Maya needs to be at school at this time, can you drop her off? Right. You know, um, I mean, and that is... And then just I want the basement to just be like a healing space where we have our meetings where, um, you know, body workers are coming over, Reiki workers. I'm, I'm trained in herbal um, therapies and things like that. So I would like to shift, you know, shift that. Even a woman who is thinking about conceiving and is having some issues, um, you know, I'm a, I'm, I do a lot of things, but... I think that's where I'm at. So your your business is it's, it's the Black Lotus Mother. Say it again. I'm so sorry. So my business is called Ubuntu Minneapolis LLC. Okay. So I want you to talk about that. Yeah. Talk talk about your business, and I want you to tell me like too like how was it starting your own business? Was it hard? Was it easy? Was it long? Mm-hmm. And what is it being a Black female business owner? So, Ubuntu is a way of being. It means I am because you are. So, we're all interconnected. Um, If you're not doing well, I'm not doing well. You know, as African people, we're very connected and we're very feeling. You know, in most African cultures, it's like, you know, I see you, I feel you. Like, how are you doing Um, here? Not so much. But it really is a, a way of being where it's like we are all working for the betterment of the community and right. ourselves and we're responsible for each other um so it actually started to be honest it started in north minneapolis at kwanzaa community church um i had just moved here um back from boston so when my daughter was three months i got a job direct at teach for america um, directing their summer residency programming. I was working with a young lady um, called Nina, her name's Nina Robertson, and we had been working with each other throughout the summer. And we kind of acknowledged each other as black women, like, hey, queen, how you doing? You know, have a good day. But it was very distant. And one day, um, she would see me pump all the time. Like, I was the milk queen at my job. Like, I, <laughs> everyone knew kids included like every three hours i'm disappearing and i'm pumping milk for my child nothing else matters i don't care if it's a report i don't care if somebody missed their bus like 30 minutes i'm pumping for my child so one day she came down and she said i'm pregnant she just started she just blurted it just out yeah, she just like blurted it out and she looked at me and she was crying and she was like yeah she was like i don't know what to do like i don't know how i'm gonna get through this and she was like I never thought I wanted children she's like how you know the same experience like I'm kind of confused but I'm happy but I feel like this and I, just, I mean that's a life-changing event like that's yeah and in her a split mother, second yeah her mother had had 10 children and she's the oldest of 10 children so she you know there's some trauma there and she was just like she looked at me and I looked at her and I said we're gonna figure it out whatever you need whatever and she was like I know that you know, I want to know more about your experience. And it was that day that we started. Nina and I started Black Lotus Mothers. We said, "Look, if it's just you and me in a room, you know, once a week, we are gonna figure it out." And she, her baby, Cayenne, is actually my first doula baby. Um, nice. 
So she was the first one that I walked through, you know, what prenatal vitamins to fix, to, to take, um, how do you build a healthy baby, what food, you know, we got to the point where now she's pregnant, like I'm bringing my lunch and I'm like, okay, feeding her and making sure that she's eating and everything. And so that started Black Lotus Mothers and then I ended up getting laid off from my job at Teach for America and I kind of just went harder with it. Like, I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Almost like it was a sign, you know what I mean? It was a sign that it was It's time for me to just go go all in on what I'm trying to do. It's no longer a side project. No, yeah. So, and so it, it was birthed out of the need for authentic spaces for black women to see other black women who are relatable and who are not talking down at them, who are not judgmental. You know, I didn't judge her at all. Every question she had, I was patient with her. I answered them. I, I, I would tell her like, this is what I did. This is what works for me. And I can help you figure out, you know, what will work for you. And it just so happened that a lot of the things that I did really worked for her. And so then that kind of spun off to Ubuntu Minneapolis where the LLC is basically um, a literacy, a pregnancy education, um, literacy and breastfeeding initiative. So it's really about educating around healthy food choices, um, encouraging women to have healthy babies and pregnancies, breastfeed when the baby comes out and then build your baby's brain from zero to five. Like it's really uh, all encompassing um, like space where it's, you know, I, I share videos of my daughter, what I'm doing with her, how I'm teaching her, how I'm building her brain. Um, I answer a lot of questions about breastfeeding and, you know, pregnancy right, right. and healing after. And it's really just building relationships with women, just one woman at a time. Um, so I always joke, I used to joke when I worked, when I left Teach for America and it was like, I do this out of my out of my Prius. Like we talked about, our, <laughs> like you. I was driving over here. I was like, "Will I would don't <laughs> my car is so junky right now." But that's how it started. I would have boxes of books, boxes of CDs, DVDs, clothes, baby clothes, diapers. It was like I literally was kind of trapping baby stuff like out of my Prius, and I and I still do that. And everyone knows that, you know, when you see me, I have. Pamphlets. I have, you know, pictures. You know, all types of things. Um, so but, that's what. But they is. also just lets them know that you're a valuable resource to have in a community. Like, right. it, obviously, there's something about you where, you know, if somebody who, you know, from a, from afar barely speaks to you, mm-hmm. but in a mo- one of the biggest moments in their life, they just come spill the beans. Like, yeah. to me, that's not that's not a fluke. That's not an accident. Mm-hmm. Like. That's just you kind of follow. You just kind of falling in line with your path, yeah. And all of this is just goes along with that. And I think it comes from. <clears throat> I mean, like the breastfeeding thing. You know, she used to laugh at me, but then it was like she saw from day one that that this my child is top priority. Like I cannot be in here saving the hood and saving everyone else's children and neglecting my like own. Like you got It happens at home first. Um, and just being very transparent with my, I've been super transparent about my mothering journey and about my postpartum and about my co-parenting relationship is very open because that had, one, that's what has helped me heal because I hid a lot of stuff and I, and I acted like a lot of things weren't happening. So for women 
you know, and we grew up in a culture where it's like you don't have, you don't talk about what happens in your home. You don't talk about your struggles. Every You're supposed to make parenting look peachy cream. And I think that's what sets us up for failure. Like every day is not the best day parenting. It's hard. And um, just really creating space for black women to know that you know, if we don't share the stories, then you you don't know that they existed. Like, it took for me to come out officially saying that I have postpartum depression for so many women in my family, you know, to be like, oh, that's what it is. I experienced <laughs> that. And I'm like, like, when I was pregnant, I needed the community or my family to sit down and say, like, and rally around yeah, you. Yeah, like, look, when you have your baby, you might experience hormonal changes, which might trigger this, which might trigger that, because I was a functional depressed person. Like, I would go to work, I worked 70, 80 hours a week, I pumped for my child, and I would come home and be depressed. And all I wanted to do was hold my child and nurse my child. Right. I needed somebody to be like, that's not okay. Like, you're human, you need human contact, you need adult entertainment you need a person to talk to you can't just you need be a in life. the crib right just right. talking to your toddler all the time <laughs> like, <laughs> like we're sitting on the floor even you know snacks like I needed someone to say that um so now that's what I do for women of like it is okay like it is okay for you to have those emotions and I also went through the process of healing myself holistically and I share that journey too um, changing my diet, um, getting getting intentional about my meditation and my yoga in my sacred space in my home, and making sure that I. It took me two and a half years to have a life outside of my daughter. I there had no life outside of her, um, and I was depressed. <laughs> so really sharing that you know that label that postpartum is the first step, identifying it, accepting it. Uh, especially as a black woman, we're we're told that that doesn't happen to us. It's not true. Like I have thousands of stories at this point of women who are like, yeah, I experienced that. Um, and then deciding how you are going to go about healing yourself. You know, what's the best option for you? For me, it wasn't the drugs, and the drugs were pushed so hard. I was like, no, okay, I'm deficient in vitamin uh, vitamin D, like. I just need to get in the sun or take vitamin D or, or I need to take, you know, these things, probiotics, um, decreasing the flesh that I ate, the dairy that I ate. No one told me that those things were impacting my mental health. Right. Um, and to see a powerful change, just to see. A real a shift, few huh? Months. Oh, therapy. I went to therapy. I'm not going to lie. Uh, a lot of women, I encourage them that. You know, if that's what you need, because what doesn't get talked about a lot, a lot of your trauma and your childhood is triggered when you have a child. And that was my experience. Um, you know, I thought, yeah, I had some issues with my mom and my dad really before. I'm like, mm, it didn't really bother me. When I had that baby, like, and I was having anxiety attacks. It's going to come out. Man, I was like, you know, I would cry dropping my child off to, to daycare. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Or I would leave work. I would put meetings on my calendar just so I can escape and get close to my child. Because she was my peace, you know. Um, and then I, I realized that I had some separation anxiety from my my experience with my mother. Um, being on drugs and being a prostitute when I was growing up, 
she, you know, I didn't realize that I would had to pick my daughter up at a certain time because I didn't want her to feel like I felt. Like he was, yeah. So out here I am. I'm telling this little three month old. I'm like, look, I got a meeting at four thirty. I'm gonna be here before five o'clock, no matter what. And she, you know, everybody's looking at me <laughs> like she's an infant. I'm like, I want her to know that right. I'm coming. If, if you know, somebody don't take me out of this world, or if it's not a tragic car accident or something, I'm going to be. But you're gonna be there, right? So, um, that was very important for me, you know, for women just to get in the habit of your doctors are advice. They're advising you through certain things and you have the right and the option to decide what works for you. Um, like I did meditation and yoga that might not be for everyone, but it's what helped keep me together. Help keep you grounded. And then what I didn't like about the drugs too was same thing with birth. They were like, oh, it's not going to affect the baby. And then I go do research and I'm like, you're not telling me that these antidepressants are going to pass through my breast milk and that's going to impact my child and her brain development and that's going to put her at risk for ADHD and other her mental health issues. I'm like, no, I'll take the vitamins and the minerals and the <laughs> working out and not introduce that to my child. Nice, nice. So talk about, so you've written a book too. Yes. I want you... To talk about that book. Yes. And then uh, you alluded to um, off air too that you're 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 in the process of writing another. Yes. So I want you if, if <laughs> you, you got if the you, exclusive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you feel comfortable about that, I want you to talk about both of those. Yes. Um. So okay, <laughs> I got laid off from. So my book is called Mothering Through Pain and Suffering in Silence. It's a collection of stories from survivors and. The theme, Mothering Through Pain and Suffering in Silence, is attached to the Black Superwoman Complex or the Strong Black Woman um, Complex or Archetype. And how it started, so I got laid off from Teach for America. This is the first moment. Maya was about a year and a half. So I've been grinding for Teach for America from three months to about one and a half. Um, And that's when I found out I had postpartum. My daughter was a year and a half when I was diagnosed with postpartum depression by a therapist. I've been suffering from it for a while, but it took me to slow down, to get close to myself. And I literally, like, I left my office completely okay. When I got in my car. Break down. I broke down so hard. Like, I was, by the time I got home, I was super exhausted. Um, I just cried so much, so much, so much. And I was just like, wow. Like, in my mind, I was like, I'm free. Like, I've been feeling like a slave. I've been feeling not okay um, emotionally. And then I got a severance package. And then I knew that if I needed to, I would be able to have unemployment. So I was like, I literally get to take this time to focus on me and healing me. And it's ironic because I'm back in the same space without the mental health challenges. So now I'm back in the same space working again, where it's like I I take on these jobs where I know it's not what what I'm supposed to be doing. But because the numbers look right, I I try to stick it out. Right. Um, So... That day, honestly, when I was crying, I, I was crying in my car. I remember it was 11-11, 2015. It was full moon day. It was raining. So it's like I started crying and then it started raining outside. It was just raining. So I'm like in my car. Symb- symbiotic with nature. <laughs> so much. It was raining so hard. It was thundering. Um, I actually was like 30 minutes late picking up Maya that day because I could not, like my body just broke down like I could not drive could not pick her up 
Um, and in that moment, I said, I'm going to write a book about my experience. I said, I am taking off my mask. I'm tired of carrying the weight of this. This di- I had just been diagnosed about a month, the, the month before. So I was seeing the therapist. And then in that moment, she's helping me unpack my family trauma, my childhood experience. And all of these things are just like, this is why you're feeling like this. You know, these these um, surface level things that you think don't really matter, didn't have an impact on you. Now that you have a little person that you're responsible for, you're like, it does matter. It does matter that, you know, there were days when your mom dropped you off at school, she was high. That matters. That mattered to you. Um, so that day I was like, I'm going to write a book about my experience about the postpartum depression. And I'm going to tell the world that like black people do get this. This is not exclusive to white women. And it's not just a privilege, you know, because it feels like it felt like a privilege to me. Like, it's OK for you to come home to your family and say, I have postpartum. And everybody be like, what can we do? Like, how can we support you as black women? When we say that, people are like, oh, you're over-exaggerating or that's not true and, you know, tough it up, put your chest out, you know, black women have to keep going. And um, that whole night I stayed up, the whole night, I didn't go to sleep at all, writing. I was writing that story. My story that's in there, literally about 90% of the words and everything are exactly what I poured out that night. And what I did was I said... I was going to connect with other women so that I can share my my story with them and get their reaction. And it was just spirit led. It was something that kept saying, you know, reach out to this woman or this woman or her Facebook status has been a a little bit, you know, weird. Shaky, yeah. yeah. And so the first book, a fun fact is I know every single woman personally in this book. There's one woman that I met on Facebook that I've been following, but still spirit-led. It was like, ask her. And my ask was, I want you to read my story. I want to set up a meeting or a phone interview afterwards, and I want to get your 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 reaction. And I did not expect this the conversations that came. It was literally like I was on, I was conducting like a research project. And so many different perspectives so all on some that you got a lot of it like you felt yourself too yeah so the theme mother through pain and suffering and silence i didn't have that i didn't have the language for the strong black superwoman complex i knew about the strong black woman but all of that was shaped after and basically and then my other question after you read that i would ask how are you really doing you know because i felt like a lot of people had over the course of that year and a half of my daughter's life, many people checked in on me and many people were like, how are you doing? But they didn't really provide space and time for me to tell them how I felt. It was more a formality. Yeah. And then, or <clears throat> it was the opposite. Like my mother had a really hard time when I when I published this because she just felt so bad. She was like, I asked you, were you depressed? I was like, I didn't know that was depression. And then when I tried to explain it to her, she remind my mom's white, but she reminded me how much a strong black woman I was. So even my mother perpetuated that. She remind, she named off all the things. Like, you were adopted, you were this, you were this, 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 this. And you've been through all that, so this is nothing, right? You can get through this. I'm like, this is not, like, anything I've ever been through. Um, so it had me questioning my strength, you know, am I really weak? Am I not a strong black woman? That'll really play head games with you too. Because yeah. I 
<clears throat> have been in situations where, or one major situation that was professionally that you know several years back that I really started to question myself, and that's something that I'm not used to doing. Yeah, me either. And that that really worked me over mentally. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine, and that has that doesn't even compare to the gravity of what mothers deal with. Uh, when it comes to postpartum depression and stuff like that, so if that worked me over mentally, I can only imagine what it did, what mm-hmm. what it does to mothers. Right, and then you have you know, and then you have the dynamic of I was the only black woman on a team. All what I I literally have PTSD from Teach for America. I think I'm now I'm kind of like over it, but I, for 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 about a year I was like I don't want to hear that name. I didn't want to see white people. I don't want to talk to white people. Like if you're not my mom, I. I don't want anything to do with it. Is that rough, it, huh? The microaggressions wore me down so much. Oh, yeah. And then I had, and then it was a lady who was connected on the university side that there was always racial tension in the issue. So it was the trigger of, of her and being in the experience where I'm like, this space is not set out for me. It's not cut out for me. Um, and my team... They didn't really, it wasn't really my team. It was the structure and the the culture of Teach for America that, and I, you know, I probably can't say the last employer, but you know where I worked. Um, Same thing, you know, very white space, being too black in the space. um, um, And so that's how the book, the book started off that night. I wrote my story that night. I reached out. I have a list. I still carry the notebook that it all started sometimes and I wrote down the names of all the women that I wanted to check in and that night I sent them Facebook messages and it just it was just so unreal how it happened because I stayed up all night and I'm messaging women all through the night early morning all these women were up All of but them that were tells up. you something, though. And we were just having these conversations. I'm like, yo, I want you to read this. Can you read this? Because I was in the sense I was doing it because I needed to hear from other women that I was not going crazy. I think part of me was like, okay, I feel crazy. I don't feel myself. But I know I'm not making this up in my head. Like, this is hard, right? Like, motherhood is hard, right? Like, being a strong woman all the time, never putting down your cape is hard, right? Or am I tripping? And every woman, every single woman was like, I have never heard it explained like that. And I have never been questioned so intentionally like that. And I've never had someone who, once they questioned me, they stopped and listened. Some of those interviews were like four or five. Just picture black women just talking about their stuff, you know. And some of those interviews were like four or five hours long where it was just like, okay. Wow. And the the cool part about this project is all of the women come from all different walks of life. Like, there are women who are presidents of, of a company in my book. There are women who are um, social media, like, famous in my book, where I'm like, wow, it's it doesn't care. Like, And it's not just about postpartum depression. It's just about just carrying that title, strong black woman all the time and suffering in silence because what happens if you think I'm superwoman, you think that I'm not human. So you think I don't go through the motions of being a human. So you don't, there's no, there is, there are very, very little spaces where black men and black women can go and really be heard and be seen without being shut down. Like, People take for granted. They just assume 
They used to you always taking stuff and handling it. Yeah. Because you are strong. But there's they 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 don't think about the fact that every now and then, like, you need to put down the shield. Yeah. Like your arms get tired, your shoulders get tired. You yeah. can't hold the shield all the time. I saw this picture um where the woman was taking off her like superwoman cape and there were all of these like bruises and like just her just tired, you know, and that's what when I look at black women, a lot of the times I see that. Um, so I call myself a recovering superwoman because I have no problem setting boundaries now. I have no problem saying no. I can't help everybody. I can't bail everybody out financially. Um, I can't watch your kids today, sis, because, like, I don't have any energy. <laughs> like, your kid going to be in the living room eating cereal. Like, <laughs> if you want them to come over, they can come over. But I need to go to sleep. You know, like, right. that's where I am of, like, I have finally got into the space where I'm transparent about where I am mentally. I take care of myself. I practice radical self-care. And um, I'm okay with that. And that's what and that's what reboots me. So book number two I'm working on is collecting stories, um, more stories, mother. Because what happened, I reached out to about 30, 40 women, okay. about 34 submissions took place. Two of the submissions are mine. Twelve of the women are from Minneapolis, and then the other women are all from all over. There were women that I reached out to that didn't take me seriously. They're like, "You're not writing a book." Like, I don't know anyone who wrote a book. You're but not now, since they saw you put one out, they're like, "All right, now I'm ready now to be I'm transparent ready. and yes. have these conversations with you." Yep. And even there were so there were women who weren't ready to publicly tell their story. There were women who were who did go through the exercise of writing their story down and could vocalize what that did for them and the transformational experience. And then there were women who submitted anonymously who are now have different pieces of their story that they're like, okay, you know, I, I need to let go. Or I need to heal from this. And the hiding in secret is actually what's killing, killing me. It, that bad energy. Yeah. You gotta, you and, and my family, my family has a hard time with who I am and how transparent I am. And, you know, on Facebook, I don't make it seem like every single day is okay. I'm like, look. They want you to keep some stuff in house. No, I'm not. No more. I'm not. And and only because I've been through the suffering behind the closed doors, saving face, like, oh my relationship is perfect. Like, no, like we've been living in this house. We only live together for six months. And I'm like, we're roommates, we don't talk. There's no intimacy. I'm like, I'm not gonna keep telling you all, like, this is my roommate. Like, he's my co-parent and my roommate. Like, we are not, people will be like, are y'all getting married? I'm like, we are not getting married. You're like, I, you're like this is not a game. <laughs> This okay. is not a training race. This is for real. Right. And so, you know, part two is sharing the sharing of those stories. But what has uncovered for me is the strong black superwoman complex is not exclusive to mothers. So as black women, black women are um, the mothers of civilization. We always take on a mothering, nurturing role um, if, if we're well. I'll say that. Um, if we're well and we're taking care of ourselves, it's naturally in us to take care of everyone else and to overwork ourselves in the community. So the second um, book is going to have a spin on healing mother wounds. Um, so really looking at black um, mother and daughter relationships and how there are some children who are gonna submit their stories that are strong black women 
who are birthing other things, their careers, their dreams, their goals, um, and suffering and silence. But then they have some stuff from their mom that you can see that mom was mothering through pain and suffering and silence and was pouring toxicity into them. And so it's about them. It's so essentially, if, I, if I'm quoting you correctly, it's about them unpacking a lot of that mental yeah. and emotional baggage yes. that they have, despite the fact that they succeeded. Yes. And it might not look like, you know, yes. they it might not look like it's affected them or, or it might have been at the same time it might have been their motivation but it also still wears on them on the inside and so what I do my work is always to generate at least two generational approach so I am transparent about my healing journey with Maya and how she's come here and she's chosen me for a very specific reason to teach and heal pieces of me pieces of my you know little girl self Um, so I am really trying to get at if we want healthy communities and we want healthy families, we have to work on healing the mother wounds and the connections. So I have been doing, you know, more talking with community members and women about, you know, what's your relationship with your mother? Do you know your birth story? How did you come into this world? What's your story? Um, are there any things from your childhood that, you know, are coming up now? You know, it took me to be 30 seven for me to be like dang I have separation anxiety but because I never had someone that I was attached to that I that I cared about more than anything in this world for it to kick in you know I, right I, I never had a little person that I was attached to like you're still finding yourself in a way what well, or you or you you were in the process of that I think I just I was just a loner I was just I isolated myself. How I coped with that was pretty much like I hooped, I played ball, and I isolated myself. Like I spent so much time in my room reading, writing, just being alone. I'm very, and I'm still like that pushing 30. Like I'm an introvert. Um, Even though my work has called me to be extroverted, to talk a lot, it's really draining. (laughs) And it's a lot of work. (laughs) And I would prefer not, I'm an introverted extrovert. That's what I call myself. Like, I know how to be extroverted, but I have to work really hard to do it. Like, it takes I'm, a lot out of you, yeah. <laughs> I'm the person who will go in a space and not talk. I'll be like, hey. And when I say my daughter has come here to teach me this, she's complete opposite. Extroverted to the day, to, to, to the max. Like, she wakes up at 630. It's a party. She's loud. She's saying hi to everybody. Yeah, she, she introducing herself to everybody. every single person. And it makes me crazy. I'm like... I'm in between, like, okay, you don't talk to strangers, you know? But then when I see the people's face light up, it's like, okay, I get it. Like, she's like, hey, how you doing? My name's Maya. What's your name? And <laughs> Maya has helped me make friends. Right. Because I really don't. I'm just like, hey, if you don't talk to me, I don't talk to you. I think that's cool. <laughs> I think that's I, I think that's super cool, actually. Yeah. And, it yeah, just, just releasing myself and being open to her teaching me because children are the closest thing to God like her intuition is through seeing her journey has blown my mind like she can read energy her in her intuition is very strong I've watched her interact with groups where it's like oh we'll walk in a space she'll go to this person and speak to this person and hug this person and be all up on their lap and everything and this person she's like Mm-mm. she'd be really close to me like I don't know I ain't too sure about this person so, um, you know, I don't get as an introvert, I, I can read energy well now, um, but it, if she, she taught me that. That's awesome. Yeah. 
I mean, there's a lesson in everything. I like to say there's a lesson in everything. Yeah. There's even a there's even a lesson to be learned from a bee trying to get to a flower in the middle of the wind. It's so much with the wind blowing. So you know, so much that we just don't pay attention to. Um. So yeah. So that's what I'm doing, and I'm also working on a journal to this because what has happened? A lot of women have read it. Um. Just I just reached a milestone where there are 500 books out there. Not necessarily 500 people pay for the books, but there are 500 copies of Mother Through Pain out there. And I've gotten feedback that for women, it's heavy, you know, because there's so many different stories. There are a lot of triggers that you're going to go through reading them. It's like it takes you on a roller coaster. Um, and so much, even myself, like publishing it was really hard because I had to sit with those stories and I carry those stories and I'm an empath too so when people tell me their pain and stuff I feel I literally feel it like I feel it in my heart I feel it in my womb I feel it in my body so um basically a lot of people were like you know stuff is coming up for me as I'm reading and I need a space to process so it'll be a journal where there will be some reflection piece you know based on what you're reading what things are coming up for you is there anything connected to your childhood or anything then some affirmations from each of the women who submitted the stories if there's a woman going through this what are some affirmations that you would pour into her so it's going to kind of be like affirmations um, journal space and then if you are going through this, how do you take this experience and transform this pain into your power? Because we can't just sit in it. You know, we have to unpack it and we have to work through it. And I birthed a book out of my pain. Everyone's not going to do that. You know, what what can you do to, you know, you might commit to making sure that you offer yourself for women who are experiencing that. And, and that's what I do, too, of like. People, they know, like, you could call me. Like, I'm not the person that I get. I give my personal card out to everyone, my personal cell phone number. If you feel like you are going through that, like, you could call me. I've, I've gone to houses with moms locked themselves in the bathroom and the baby is in the living room crying. and hasn't, you know, I, I'm really serious about it. Like, I'm not just the person that's like, you know, let me get all this. Because it's a grassroots all the proceeds from the book goes right to funds to organizing Black Lotus Mothers. So I don't receive any grant funding. I don't even write. I don't at this point. I don't even spend time writing grants because it's it's super difficult to articulate what I'm doing, and then I don't want the restrictions on my work. But right. I'm very clear. I'm revolutionary. This is about Black women. I'm not interested in working with anyone else. I'm not interested in expanding it. Um, I am interested in expanding it, but it has to be under my terms and my con- conditions. And your, and your you know? conditions. Because what happens when you make it a nonprofit organization is all these tape, you know, like bureaucracy yeah, that comes along with it. Yeah. You have to do things a certain way, and it's not about building relationships. My work is about building relationships. All of my doula clients have come to me. By recommendation, you know, someone heard heard someone that heard something, um, and I pretty much function like that. Nice. So, I mean, everything you've told us here today has been has been awesome. I like to thank you for taking the time out in your uh, your afternoon and mm-hmm. kind of telling us about yourself, your work, your journey. Um, if there's people who are out there who are looking to get a hold of you, get your book. Learn more about your business. How can I do that? Um, the best way now. So 
you probably can tell this I'm a horrible business person. That's what I should have said. <laughs> um, because I so it's one woman show, so grounded. My Facebook and my personal and my business has not been separated at this point. But the best way is to either email me at ubuntu minneapolis at gmail.com. So that's u b u n t u minneapolis at gmail.com. Or um, you could reach out to me on Instagram. That's probably the easiest way. So Black Lotus Mother on Instagram. You can also check out my website, blacklotusmothers.org. Um, and there's a section for you to send a note to me um, that goes right to my email. So those are the best the best ways. So if there's any mothers out there, any uh, not even just mothers, any men or women, to be honest with you, that are interested in learning more about what Jasmine's got going on, how they can be supportive of her efforts, but also learn more information so they can be some more supportive of, of each other in the community and build each other up. Please contact her and get a hold of her. Um, that's kind of, and that's one of, the, one of the big reasons why I brought her, um, brought her out to be a part of, be a part of this episode because I really want to, I, I want, for one, I want to highlight the strength and the beauty of women. Um, since taking this uh, birth attendance uh, certification class, I've really learned, like I've always known that women are strong and they provide and do a lot for our communities, but I've really learned like like women have been holding it down like I've 10 times harder than I ever thought. Mm-hmm. You know, they, I mean, they really have been, been we, we've really been taking women for granted. That's all I'm going to say about that. And so, I think if you're if you've listened to this, really taken in and listened to this whole episode, um, Jasmine has really illustrated how much um, she has provided to the community and provided to 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 those who have sought after her help, and how much women in general go through on an everyday basis. Um, and and even though they are strong and they have done a lot for us, how much we need to start you know, returning the favor and being there, being you know being there for them um, more. So um, if there's anything you've taken away from this, step up. If you're a man, let's step up. Let's do better. Let's be more supportive of women. If you're a woman, you know, you don't have to sit in your side, you know, sit in silence and suffer in silence. Speak up. Mm-hmm. Let us know that, uh, that you need our help and, and know that, you know, we appreciate you. Um, and I also want to highlight, you know, three books. Um that you guys need to check out. You need to check out uh, Mother Through Pain and Suffering Through Silence by Ms. Jasmine Boda. Um, Why Not Me by Gladys Milton. She's one of the uh, midwives that we were talking about earlier that we learned about in South Florida. And Listen to Me Good by, uh, about Miss Margaret Smith, uh, another midwife that we learned about um, in Alabama. Those are three books that you guys, uh, I think, that you should really take interest in. Uh, purchase, go to your local library, whatever it may be, you know, however you want to do that. But um, I think there'd be some great reads and some that you should add to your reading list on your personal library. Um, with that being said, uh, once again, Jasmine, I appreciate you coming out and speaking with us. Is there anything you'd like to say before we go? It definitely takes the village, not a village, the village. Um, the biggest thing that I've, that I've done for my transformational healing experience is being intentional about building my village. Um, so those of you who are looking to support, be a part of someone's village. And when I say fully lean in, that means lean in. So um, that's what we need. 
um, I just we just need everyone to 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 work on healing and restoring ourselves, each other, um, connections, maternal and paternal connections are so important, and it can really change the trajectory of our community. Um, so brothers, a lot of brothers are like, is the book for me? Is for every single person who cares about who cares about mothers and black women in general. Your mother is a mother. Reading this book, you're going to find things that are connected to your mom's trauma story that she hasn't told you yet. So um, I hope that the book starts conversations around that. You know, it took it took me writing it for me to have the words to even ask my mother more about her experience. Um, so that's where. We're at step outside of your comfort zone, get uncomfortable, and be a part of somebody's village. And that's what's up. That's words of wisdom coming at you guys. So um, with that being said, as always, if you guys have any questions, comments, suggestions, critiques, um, all of the above, please reach out to me to chilltimepod at gmail.com, and I'll address those as promptly as possible. Um, Other than that, I appreciate you guys for taking the time out and listening to us here today, and we are out.
It's always funny when folks talk about strong women like we're mutants out here surviving in the wilderness, but really we just be casually queening. Strong women tackle storms and shout rally cries and look these devils in the eye and can make a throne out of a bus bench. We invite you into our temple, but don't get too comfortable because we will invite you to exit if you fool with our peace. And by the way, strong women, having feelings don't make you weak. If you gotta cry, let them fall. Then mop them up and keep it moving. Cause we gotta knuckle up, hustle up, buckle up for the ride and know when to shut up. Cause strength is also knowing when to hold your rage until it's refined. See, strong women disrupt politeness in the way of purpose. And then we make lames nervous. So they say we masculine. Try again. Strong women keep it a hundred and got you mad cause you ain't seen it coming. Cause we still get underestimated. Though our kind can create life right around our stomachs. Strong women are not ladylike to folks who think to be a lady, you must be liked. Strong women are not for everyone. Strong women are everywhere. Strong women don't give a damn if you don't like our hair. We out here holding signs, reading signs, redesigning how we've been defined, and we bad, and we fly, and we dope, and we fine. And we come home, come out our bra, take our cape off, and unwind with a glass of wine. Honey, laughing our way through the naysayers, body waving through the bullshit. Don't fear our strength. Step up and step in to replenish it. We are solid because we are the bridges that make this world connect. They say all day, I want a strong woman. But know this, a revolutionary woman's love will not be one passively. So if you want a strong woman, you better come correct, correct. Thank you.